Welcome to Interiors and Sources I Hear Design Podcast. My name is Adrienne Thompson, and today I have two guests with me, Jeff Payne and Taran Duda, who are the founding principals of Duda Payne Architects in North Carolina. Thank you guys for both joining me today. Good morning. Good morning. Happy to be with you. Great. So Jeff and Taran um, are here to discuss the importance of master planning for schools and university campuses. They're going to be using some examples from their own work in the area to share with us as what can be done with these um, different designs. Both have found that community inclusive master planning for both K-12 and university campuses can meet the needs of local students, um, faculty, and community while also providing innovative campus-specific solutions to challenges of creating and sustaining a long-term institutional vision for these structures. So Jeff and Teron, to get us started on this topic, um, can you both just start off by explaining what you mean when you say master plan? Um, and what does a master plan really include and entail? Sure, I'd be happy to talk about that. Um, you know, we've been, um, uh, we've really been involved in a lot of different master plans for universities and I think what's interesting is that is there's a very strong analogy if you think about how universities have grown, how they're established over time, uh, analogy to cities and small cities and towns and how towns are, are actually constructed and construed and, and evolve over time. And sometimes we'll be invited to do a master plan where an institution has really grown organically uh, without much uh, forethought into how it's going to ultimately end up, what the final layout will be of, a, of an institution. In that particular case, we're brought in to create some clarity. And we've all seen these institutions and universities where it's almost a haphazard way in which the city has evolved. I, I call it medieval planning. Uh, the, the planning has been based on Okay, there's a there's an available piece of land. Let's put another building there. Um, the overall vision and overall thought to what that institution is going to become, it almost becomes an afterthought. And in that particular case, we will be brought in to pr provide some clarity. Uh, sometimes we will be surprising or shocking the particular client by suggesting actually tearing down buildings to provide a very clear idea for what the institution or what the university master plan is. Um, we work very, very hard to try and understand what the essence of that institution is, what their aspirations are, and to figure out how to strengthen that in, in the way that the built, that university is laid out. Um, sometimes the, there is a very clear layout, very clear understanding and we will um, provide ways in which, how do we make this better? How do we make what they currently have a, a better relationship? It may be programmatic. It may be rather than a functional or rather than a physical change, it may actually be a programmatic change. <clears throat> so um, we all know how cities might be developed over time along either a linear path, a radial organization, uh, an orthogonal grid. 
each city takes on its own personality based on geography, based on who the founders were and how they were developed. And I think the same thing is true for universities. So it's interesting to us in terms of how we are brought in to do a master plan, whether in some ways it's a way of restructuring what they have or enhancing what they have. You know, I'm playing off of what Tehran said about great cities. When you travel to Europe or other parts of the world, it's often the spaces between buildings that you remember more than the buildings themselves. And in campus master planning, it seems like there's almost a pre-World War II and post-World War II approach. And uh, before the war, you see a lot of thought given between um, the buildings, but also the spaces between the buildings and how they work as a whole. And after the war, you see more, it's more about the buildings themselves, the buildings making a statement in and of themselves and not really as having as much consideration about the spaces that the buildings create between themselves and the buildings around them. So one of the things we're always looking at, you know, because you remember your campus where you were educated more, we would argue, uh, by the spaces uh, between buildings than maybe being in the buildings. Uh, You think of great spaces like the quads at uh, Duke University. Uh, that those are the those are the things that we remember most as we leave our college campuses and uh, really looking to how to make those more significant than maybe they were in the past. And this is why you see us proposing things like maybe uh, adding on to buildings or even demolishing a building that is no longer of use to the university to create a greater space between the buildings surrounding it. Yeah, and going off of what you're saying there, Jeff, I'm instantly having flashbacks. I went to the University of Iowa, and I distinctly remember, like you said, the quad area, as we call it, the Pentecrest at the University of Iowa. And you really do remember those green lawns and, as you say, the spaces between the buildings. So I do completely agree, going off personal experience, that those are very important factors should be taken into consideration. It's what it's what uh, plays such an important part uh, in our memory of place. And again, as Tehran mentioned, of course, we need to address the programmatic needs of the university or college uh, with the buildings and how the buildings function and even how the buildings function in relationship to one another. But we're always trying to bring back uh, what, what's the big idea? What, what is the uh, sense that one creates, uh, one comes away with uh, from being on this campus? It's got to be more than just a collection of buildings that serve programmatic needs. It's interesting, and I think that that whole notion of public space. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was in, in Pompeii and uh, looking at this city that had been destroyed by a volcano. Uh, and it's interesting that the the public spaces, which were, they call them the forum, the forum were considered to be the most important and sacred places in that city because they were the place of, of social interaction. They were the place in which all strata of people could come together in one place and share a social interaction. 
that's that's not that different today in today's modern age. Uh, it's an ancient idea, but the notion of having a space like a forum that becomes that public space that everyone can share and is, is non-hierarchic. I think it's, it's true in just about any university where, where great gatherings happen. So going off both your thoughts and definitions of a master plan and just a bit of its details, can you guys walk us through some of your notable projects, um, whether it's campuses and universities, K-12 schools? Um, for example, I know you did some work at Appalachian State University as well as North Carolina School of Science and Math. So just using a specific example, what were maybe some of the details behind those master plans? Sure. Actually, if you if you look at um, Appalachian and you look at uh, another project that we did years ago for uh School of the Arts in Winston-Salem. Both of those campuses um, are located in, in hill towns. I call them hill towns because there is no flat plain. Um, they had a, actually had an aspiration in Winston-Salem, an aspiration of, of becoming a very formal Beaux-Arts, large quad, a very organized and structured campus. And the reality was that their topography didn't lend itself to that. It required a different way of thinking about a master plan. And it's the same model that we used at, at Appalachian, which is the idea almost as if you I were to go back to Siena, Italy, and talk about precincts, each of these precincts being families that owned a precinct. And the precinct was defined by natural boundaries, by natural edges and topography. The idea of precincts gives a lot of credence to the way even students and faculty think about their own schools, which is, which is amazing. We, we put some tracing paper over the campus plan, and we asked the students to draw with a pen where those natural boundaries were between where they thought they could walk, where they didn't think they felt like they were, they were part of their own community. And the faculty did the same thing. We had almost an identical plan. So there are these subliminal edges and subliminal boundaries that are created by people who use a campus just by the pathways they take, the districts that they're in. So we embraced that idea of precincts and really developed the master plan around a number of precincts giving each of them their own identity and creating walls that would, would define an edge, clearly define an edge, but the wall was actually a path. The pathways become critical in a, a plan like this. It's less about a, a formal overriding concept. It's more about a sequential order of experience of how you use and, and understand a campus like this. You, you asked about the North Carolina School of Science and Math. We're actually fortunate enough to be working for them on two campuses. And I wanna make the, um, uh, describe a little bit about the distinct differences between the two of them as it relates to this notion of spaces between buildings. Here in North Carolina, we're working with the School of Science and Math that actually uh, adopted uh, or, or moved into buildings that were a former hospital uh, several decades ago. So now we're working very much within a building uh, complex that's got a, 
a context. Um, uh, the, this is a, um, an institution that has three or 400 residential uh, senior, juniors and senior high school students. Uh, and it's very much in an urban context. So what we did here, working with the existing infrastructure and existing buildings on that campus, was to try to create a better definition of the central quad space and connecting the buildings uh, with a linear path that really worked almost as a breezeway uh, that defined the edges of the central uh, space, but also connected all of the buildings together. So this is more, I would say, an introspective looking inward uh, notion of a campus, again, working within an existing context, an existing grouping of buildings. In Morganton, we're designing a, a whole new campus, a residential campus, again, for 300 to 600 uh, residential students, juniors and seniors in high school. And it will be on the crest of a, of a hilltop that overlooks the mountains of North Carolina. The views out from this campus are spectacular in almost every direction. Uh, so we're looking at the spaces between the buildings and how to create the sense of community on campus. But unlike here in Durham, uh, this is as much about um, the views out from those spaces to the spectacular mountains of North Carolina. And I think that kind of ties into another trend we're seeing with interior design, and that's just sustainability and just health and wellness. And I think those views and making sure you have access to those natural surroundings, whether, you know, it's through windows or going outside. Um, I think that's all a part of a health and wellness. Trend. It's, it's true. And uh, if you think about our buildings, for instance, like uh, our Tally Student Union at uh, NC State or Emory Student Union Campus Life Center at Emory University in Atlanta. We're always very cognizant about the spaces within the building and the spaces just outside the building and trying to integrate the two. Uh, so we have public gathering spaces that are student used spaces both inside these buildings and immediately outside these buildings. Yes, there's views to nature beyond but there's also this sense of how do you use spaces immediately surrounding these buildings uh, for all size, sizes of student gatherings. It might be a yoga class, it might be a demonstration, uh, but there's a sense of a very almost a seamless uh, uh, arrangement between interior and exterior. I think that's a key uh, facet of our uh, work on campuses. We, we like to describe some of our buildings as being extroverts. <laughs> if you if you look at many of the the buildings that were built on campuses back in the sixties and seventies, these were introverted buildings, uh, usually windowless, dark. Uh, they did it for energy conservation and um, rather forbidding and not very inviting to students. So, one key factor in both buildings that we're doing today, as well as campuses that we're doing today, is the notion of transparency. And the transparency is for the fact that these next generation of young kids want to see and be seen by their fellow students. It's part of that social fabric that they're involved in. But that sense of transparency translates also to what you're speaking of, which is wellness. 
that there are many, many studies that uh, are, have now proven the beneficial act, aspects of natural daylight. And these are places that students want to be. Um, our student union at NC State, uh, I went there for a, a dinner and a, and a performance one night, and the director came over to me and he said, you should come back here between 10 p.m. and 2 p.m. This is where all the students come. It's a beehive. And it's because these students are clamoring for, for that space in between. They're clamoring for that space day and night where they can be with their laptop, but, but with a friend. So it's, it's definitely generational. It's definitely the notion of multitasking. But it's also the, 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 the generation that has reset priorities. And health and well-being is one of those priorities. Um, we're always astonished when spaces that we have designed ha are claimed by students for a yoga class or a meditation class, completely improvised and impromptu. And I, I would, I would claim that this would not happen unless we set the proper setting for it. They keep you on your toes, right? <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, just one last factor taking into consideration. How have you guys seen security be taken into consideration for your designs too? In a number of ways. I think the, the notion of security actually goes hand in hand with the idea of vehicles on campus. We're seeing a trend in most of these campuses where they're trying to push cars away from the center of the campus leave cars and parking at the perimeter so that the walkability serves two purposes. One, it, it really promotes the health and well-being of students. At the same time, it makes it harder for um, you know anyone from the outside to, to come in and be quickly in and out of that environment. So there's a almost a natural boundary that's created in terms of, of security, because the community can really watch its, itself. The community knows, again, I love the, the, this, this metaphor of a small city. In a small city, you know when there's a stranger in, in your midst. You know when, who doesn't belong. And I think eliminating cars from the, the center of campus is one of those ways in which you kind of create that invisible boundary of understanding who does and does not belong on that campus. You know, uh, when we're, Tehran and I are in our 60s, so we remember being school-aged children uh, and having drills uh, during the day for an atomic bomb. Now drills are for active shooters. So the, the you know, it's still some of this um, fear. I, I wish we didn't have to uh, think and uh, talk to children about these things. But so we want our buildings, though, to be open, but certain the buildings are also designed uh, so that the classrooms can be sealed off. People can't see in uh, in an active shooter uh, condition into the classrooms. So those rooms where you anticipate students being for long periods of the day, yes, they are secure, but the more open spaces, the more uh, study open study spaces uh, and and um, performance type spaces, hangout spaces. Uh, those are you know much more open between the inside and the outside. 
And these schools today, uh, for instance, Bullis, you know, is a very, um, it had much more property than we um, realized. Um, they, when they first hired us, they wanted us to think about how could they grow within all of the property they owned. And we convinced them to densify the central campus. Since Tehran said, make it a, a pedestrian centered uh, campus, moving the cars to the perimeter and, and really making it a place where the students can closely interact with one another, know who's on campus and who isn't on campus uh, and have this sense of security but still having a campus that has buildings that create spaces between each other and, and buildings that are welcoming uh, from the outside as you enter in. You know, years ago, there was a, a, a famous um, architectural anthropologist, Jane Jacobs, and she wrote this landmark book that, that talked about how in communities, the safest communities were the ones where there were eyes on the street, where people could see and watch the what was actually happening in their context and on the street. And um, it's a profound, simple but profound observation that the most crime happened when, when you're not able to do that, when you're not able to look at the, these environments and see who's there, who's not there. Uh, once again, I think turning these buildings inside out and making them more transparent in, in many ways, I think, adds to that sense of security because you're able to see and be seen by others. Yeah, and I think we've seen evidence of that in a lot of more modern design, too, especially when it comes to schools and just campuses in general. So, well, I absolutely appreciate your guys' expertise and sharing um, examples from your own work. Just to wrap it up, do either of you have one piece of advice or a tip for anyone listening who might be looking to create their own master plan for their next project? Sure. You know, um, everyone talks about this, this uh, catchphrase, live, live, work, play. Uh, I'd like to add to that, learn, live, work, play, learn, and share. And I think we're, I'm really, really excited because I feel like this next generation of young people really are getting it right. I feel as though their priorities are in the right place. Uh, and in many ways, what we're finding is that there's an overlapping bound of those boundaries that we once used to have. And it has to do with the way that we, in today's age, technology has now allowed us to do a multitask to at one moment you're reading uh, uh, studying at the next moment you might be surfing looking shopping socializing playing a game uh, uh, researching something so all the boundaries of tasks that we might have had in the past are, have now blurred and are, are overlapped and this is having a profound effect on not only how universities are designed, but how cities and some of our buildings are designed. And it's exciting because we design for the, the society that we have presented to us. And this new society that we're entering into is, is multi-purpose, multitasking, and highly energized. So I'm, I'm thrilled that we have the, the, this next generation of young clients 
to work with. And it's an inclusive uh, approach to life, which we think is wonderful. It's also an approach to life that uh, really thinks about the whole person, not just the mind and the body, but the spirit as well. That's why these connections to nature are so important. Uh, the word mindfulness uh, comes to mind. And I think we try to design buildings and master plans that address uh, the whole person, not just uh, the education of a person, but really the life and lifestyle of a person going forward. And we find in young people, um, uh, again, as Teron said, this new way of thinking that, gosh, we, we didn't have when we were their age and we uh, we tip our hats to them for having this more inclusive and holistic approach to the world. Well, it's clear from this conversation and from what I've learned from you two that you guys really take all aspects into consideration for your design and when taking on a project, you know, both the exterior and interiors as well as just viewpoints from others involved, be it the users or someone involved, you know, with the institution itself. So, it's refreshing to hear someone, you know, incorporate inclusive practices into their work as well. Um, but I just wanted to thank you again both so much for joining us today. Um, thank you to our audience for listening. And that is our latest episode for I Hear Design. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you.